This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean heart and a pure, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul toward his false and does not swear deceitfully. Amen. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are the king of glory. Lord, thank you that we worship Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one, working out your plan for your people, Lord. Drawing us into your presence. Lord, I pray as we look at this psalm, as we um, survey some, some themes throughout scripture, I pray that at the end of day, we, will, we would be encouraged. We would be uh, enlivened by your presence. We would have confidence and and what the king of glory is doing on his throne, ruling and reigning, and how that impacts our life today, how that, how that actually makes a difference for my afternoon, for my week, for my work, for my children. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in your word, would move in our hearts, and would give us eyes to see the throne room, give us eyes to see the glory and majesty of your son. So I thank you for this morning. Uh, just the people here who we get to worship with and gather as your temple where you dwell in the, in the presence of your people. So I pray that as we move through this, that there would be clarity and encouragement as we consider you. Now in your name I pray, amen. I, um, you kind of get, uh, I don't know, inspiration is maybe the right word. You, you know, you're thinking about like a topic and you're dwelling on the Psalms and you're uh, kind of working through, you know, what questions around what does the text say? And, and, you know, as you work through and prepare for a sermon, like certain things kind of pop out and you're trying to sort them and like make sense of it. And how am I going to, you know, I could, we could spend all day talking about this. We could go this direction. And then, then you start to get some clarity there and you're like, well, how do I introduce um, what, what we're going to talk about this morning? And I was sitting eating breakfast, just kind of like, mulling this over, and I look up, and Daniel and Katie have been putting me and Bridget up in the basement for what, what is a lot, much longer than we, we told them that they would, <laughs> so thank you for that. But I look up while I'm eating breakfast, and this is what's on the wall. It's, the mountains are calling, and I must go. The mountains are calling, and I must go. And, I, and that's uh, a really good introduction for what we're going to talk about this morning. The mountains are calling, and I must go. Because the, the psalm is actually going to talk about ascending the hill of the Lord. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And there's, and there's, some, there's some really amazing uh, biblical theology. There's really amazing um, elements of the story of, of how we explain the whole story of the Bible. There's some really amazing elements that are actually connected to this idea of mountains, this idea of the hill. And so we're going to walk through the story, and that's my one slide for the whole sermon, so we only have to go there, and then we can stay on that slide for the rest of the time. <laughs> getting a funny look. Let's see if I can... Oh, we're getting close. Yes. All right. Success. Now I'm turning it off. Um, we're going to walk through the story of the Bible... And, and get a sense, hopefully get a sense for how valuable 
and how important the idea of mountains or hills are in the story of the Bible. And it's interesting because it's that, that, that idea that the mountains are calling, and so I must go, it is extremely biblical in its reference, fit into the story of scripture. The mountains are calling and I must go. And so the psalm, this short psalm actually gives us an idea of why that's so significant. But before, before, we, before we focus on the mountains and kind of walk through the story a little bit and, and how mountains show up all throughout scripture, I think it's important to start where the psalmist starts. And in the first couple verses in Psalm 24, he kind of gives us the basis for God telling us his story. He gives us the, the basis for why we would take scripture so seriously, why we, would, why we would want to filter our lens of how we understand the world through God's story. He gives us the basis for that in the first couple of verses. And he says, why the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Or, or another way to say that the earth is, is God's and everything that fills the earth. Everything you see Everything that exists, everything you interact with, all of it is God's. He owns it. It's his. And it tells us, and, and we count, we are filling the earth. And he tells us why. He says, why? Because for he, verse two, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's like everything is God's because he made it. He created it. He has a structure for it. He was very particular on how he put, how we exist together. It was no accident that things operate in the world the way they do. Whether that's gravity, whether that's morality, whether that's time, all of these things have a purpose and intention from the one who owns it all. So he starts with that. So there's intentionality around here. There, there's ownership from our creator, our God here. And it's interesting that he starts the psalm with this broad sweeping reality of the fact that God owns everything. In the very next line, he says, well, then who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And at face value, you kind of have to ask the question like, okay, God owns everything. Now who should go up the hill? <laughs> okay, how, how is that connected? <laughs> like, like, why is that the next thought in the Psalm? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? If he has a purpose for everything, if he's created everything, if he's added structure, who's gonna ascend the hill of the Lord? And you have to ask yourself, well, what, what is the importance to this idea of the, the hill of the Lord? Why is the psalmist saying, the mountains are calling and I must go? And in order to understand that, we can look at the story and say, where do mountains, where does the hill of the Lord first show up in the story? How do we make sense of that? I'm gonna flip over to Genesis. Yeah, there's another hill there, but it starts at the beginning. What does God create? He creates the garden. In Genesis 2, verses 10, it said, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And then it divided into four. A river flew out of Eden. Wherever Eden was, it was above the garden because we know how rivers work to go this way. A river flew out of... <laughs> flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So something, there's already this idea of this hill coming down into the garden. And from there it split and went into four different directions. So you can say, Aaron, you're making a whole lot out of a verse about which way the river flew. 
and if that's kind of where your head is going, we have more than just the direction of a river flowing in Genesis. If you go to Ezekiel, it's another you know, book that is, we don't typically read or look at a whole lot because it's difficult. But in Ezekiel 28, in Ezekiel 28, there's a, a passage in verses 13 and 14 that's poetically talking about a king, a king that, that God had made to prosper. And he says in verse 13, in a, in a poetic fashion, he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. He li- and then he lists all of these different beautiful stones, jasper, diamond, sapphire, gold, all, all of these things you had. And on the day you were created, they were prepared. In verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. You had some authority. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. There the prophet Ezekiel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that Eden was the holy mountain of God. Which would make sense then, the water is flowing from Eden down into the garden. So from the very beginning, this idea of the mountain... This idea of the mountain is, is something that's, that's at the first couple of pages of, of our Bibles. And there's a handful of things that sort of surround even the first mountain. And that we'll see surround a handful of the other mountains that come. The, in every single mountain, from the very beginning, there's the idea of God's presence, God's law or his rule, He rules through his word, through his law. So we have God's presence. We have his law or his rule. And then we have his glory. His glory spreading. His glory coming from up on the mountain and spreading down throughout the whole world. Think about that as far as Genesis. We know that God walked with them in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve had the very presence of God on this mountain of Eden where the water flew into the garden and what was the law what was the rule that God gave Adam and Eve for the garden most of us are like don't touch the fruit you know like (laughs) the negative thing but positively he said work and keep it fill the earth spread all of creation with my glory and my majesty We, we, we meet on this mountain where I'm present and I'm putting you there as a ruler. Ad, ad, both Adam and Eve have dominion over the world as a ruler. And he says, as, as I have provided water in this garden, I want you to spread my glory throughout all of creation. So at the very beginning, we have this idea that at the mountain where God is present, his law, his word, is the instrument where which his ruler will spread the glory and majesty of God throughout all of creation. If only the ruler would have stayed on that mountain and done and obeyed the law rule of God. But he didn't. So what happens? He gets kicked out. He gets booted off the mountain. And so things are broken. We have the, the X in the story. We, have, we still have taste of the glory of God. We we're talking about how even a picture like this with the roses just is pleasant this morning. It brings a measure of joy. I saw people enjoying the, the one back there with the road. There's there's still beauty and majesty and glory, but at the same time, there are things that are broken. There are parts of us that don't heal like they used to. There's broken relationships. I was at Walgreens this morning using an ATM, and I saw two people steal in the five minutes I was there. Things are broken. That's where the psalmist is coming from when he says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand on that throne 
and accomplish the spreading through the rule and the word and the presence of God, the spreading of his glory throughout all of creation. Who can get there? Who could go back into the garden? Who can pass through the flaming sword that was posted after Adam was kicked out? This theme of mountains shows up in the, the, the promise, the, the forward arrow of the story too. What is, why does God call Israel out of Egypt? Moses is talking to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh's like, hey, okay, you know, all the things you're bringing, they're not so good. How about you just like go over here, like pretty close by and then do your sacrifices and, and take care of it here. And Moses is like, no, God, God has called us to the mountain to worship him. God has called us to a specific place so that we could meet with him, his presence. And, 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 and with Moses, after Adam has been kicked out of his mountain temple, with Moses, when they go to the mountain, it's flaming. It's like described like a volcano. The earth is shaking. God's presence descends on the mountain and there's smoke and fire. And the, the people hear the audible voice of God on the mountain and they say, we, let's send a representative up. He can, they can talk to him. This is too scary for me. So they send a representative leader up to meet with God on the mountain. And what does he bring down? His law and his rule. And what does that law and that rule and the keeping of the covenant do for the people of God? Brings them into the promised land. Brings them into the Eden flowing with milk and honey. It's another time where this idea of the mountain shows up and God is present. God has a law and a rule that's meant to spread his glory into the world, into the realm. And, you know, for Moses' generation, they reject the way and the word that God has given them, and they try to t bring Eden, they try to, to get into the promised land without regard for what God has said. And that goes terribly. And so God casts them out into the wilderness, and that whole generation passes away before Joshua brings them into the land and brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey as they follow the, the presence and the law word of God as he rules. It came from the mountain. That's what David is saying. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy, fiery, earth-shaking, lightning presence of God on his holy mountain? so that we could have his rule and reign begin to spread his glory throughout all of creation. Who can do that? How is that even possible? Which is interesting that David says that because he's on a different mountain. If you look over at Isaiah 2, Isaiah 2 talks about another mountain. It's important. Isaiah 2, verse 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may have his law rule, and that we may walk in his path, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, all of those things were uphill from the rest of Israel. It's another mountain. Jerusalem is another mountain where God comes down. His special presence is in the temple. They worship him. They, they visually see him in the temple. That's where the law is stored in the Holy of Holies. 
And from there, God's King David rules and reigns with God's law and his rule so that more glory and majesty could be spread throughout the world. And that actually begins to happen with Solomon. He asks God for wisdom as he's sitting up on Mount Zion with the presence of God, building the temple of God. And he builds the temple and Israel commits to following God's law, commits to following God's rule through the representative head Solomon. And they just become wealthy beyond imagine. Like the kingdom grows. The nations flow in to just like be taught and say, Solomon, what is up? Why do you have so much wisdom? Why is everything in your house gold plated? (laughs) And that doesn't last, right? Solomon has an issue and ends up having thousands of wives and that goes poorly because that's not consistent with God's law and rule for his king. So every single one of those mountains, every single one of those mountains from, from Adam, we could talk about Abraham taking Isaac up on a mountain, to Moses, to Zion, has the presence of God, the rule of God through his law, and the desire and the goal to spread his glory throughout all of creation. So here's David in Psalm 24. He's he's in the realm where he's reading the promises. He knows he's looking forward. And he's saying, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? How are we ever gonna get anywhere if the one that is ruling for the Lord through his rule and his law keeps messing it up? How is his glory gonna spread throughout all of creation? And he says, who? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's interesting he tells us who. He could pick all kinds of different things. But it's almost like he's covering a handful of things here. He's like, you know who can ascend the mountain? The one whose actions, intentions, and word are consistent with God's law. Clean hands, it's like what I do. A pure heart. I can do all kinds of good things for very selfish reasons. And committed to truth does not lift up his soul to what is false. Basically keeps his promises. And we know the story and the whole sermon series is called Christ in the Psalms. But he's describing the one who will finally be able to ascend the mount. Be in the presence of God and perfectly articulate his rule and reign through God's word and his law. And just in case we miss it, God in the flesh shows up to articulate his law for his kingdom and he does it on a mount. The Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't an accident. He's like, I want you to see that the intent of the law was to love God and love neighbor, to love someone as you love yourself. And how does that work itself out? Through mercy and kindness and humility, to being poor in spirit, to seeing your need for a king to ascend the hill because you can't. So Jesus is telling us my kingdom that I'm gonna build as I stand on this mount and expound the law to you is the rule and reign is how things work in my world. Why? 
so that as I ascend and tell you how God is working in the world, that finally someone is there and the, the glory and the majesty and everything that I intended from the very beginning could spread throughout all of creation. And we know that for Jesus to ascend that hill and to sit on the throne, he did have to pass through the flaming sword. He did have to be a sacrifice cut and burnt at the offering, at the, the, the altar, which by the way is a mini little mountain with fire on top and smoke that goes up. Mountains are everywhere. The mountains are calling when you open your, your Bible. Jesus dies on the cross, restores the relationship that was broken with Adam. He's often called the, he's, well, often, he's called in scripture the last Adam. So he restores that relationship. And so all his disciples are like, man, death and resurrection has happened. Let's go, let's do this. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. I mean, they're bummed at first when they don't know what's going on. But after they see him resurrected, they're like, let's do this. And he's like, wait. I have to ascend. I have to ascend the hill of the Lord. I have to stand in the very presence of God. I need to be enthroned so that I can receive the blessings and pour them out to you so that I can pour out the spirit and enable you to do what I am going to do on my throne and spread the glory of God throughout all of creation through my law word as I'm in the very presence of God. Amen. So they have to wait. And the spirit is poured out. But look at verse five in Psalm 24. It would make sense that Jesus wants to ascend to the throne and wait. He says, because the one who can ascend, verse five, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And you might think, well, Jesus doesn't really need righteousness, right? Because like he's good. He did everything right. He doesn't need that. And, and this term righteousness here, it's a, it's a, there's a couple of different Hebrew words for it, but often, more often, this term is used in just rule, just reigning. Like, like he will receive a kingdom that has just laws and rules and that executes them properly. So as he ascends, as he receives the things that God has promised him, he's now given a kingdom. We say that Jesus is making every enemy his footstool. I think it's easy to think about Jesus as our king, to think about him ascending the hill of the Lord, sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. He's the very God in the flesh. He mediates the presence of God through the spirit in his people. He gives us his word. It's easy to be short-sighted and say, I mean, it doesn't really feel like Jesus has been given a just kingdom right now. It doesn't really, in my, in my day-to-day -day experience, I may struggle to recognize that Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning. And it's not... I mean, if you go back to David and, and Joshua in the promised land, uh, they didn't just walk in and everything was great. <laughs> it was very messy. They're, they had to uh, deal with different armies and they had infighting and they had all these things that led to a certain place, you know, before it fell apart again. But there's this, there's this idea that as, God, as Jesus sits on his throne and rules and reigns, I think sometimes in our life we expect like this kind of trajectory. Like, this is just how it's gonna go. 
and maybe an easy like uh, a macro way to like think about that is how many Christians do you know of that are excited about the general state of the world today? Uh, not that many. One of the, uh, a really, a book that I've only read excerpts of and want to read more because it just came out on Audible is called 2,000 Years of Christ's Reign. Think about where the world has come in 2,000 years. Think about how prevalent the gospel was in the first century after Jesus rose from the dead. We've come a long way. <laughs> Jesus hasn't been hindered. He's been ruling and reigning and making all of his enemies a footstool. The gospel has been spreading throughout all of the world. And we're sitting in air conditioning today, using technology, doing things in large part because of the fundamental things that Christians have transformed about the way the world works. We've recognized that our king rules in the world that he owns most clearly when we operate the way he has designed it to work. And we've all benefited from that. And we'll continue to benefit from that. The last, you know, I'm not very old. The last 40 years of my experience is not hinder or diminish what Jesus has been doing on his throne. He's come a long way from the first century to the 21st century. And thanks to the king that has the blessings and that's poured out the spirit and is committed 100% to the law word of God and the presence of God, things have changed dramatically over the last 2,000 years. interesting in the psalm he switches um, from an individual to a group he's talking about uh, Jesus ascending the hill, receiving the blessing, having the righteous rule and then the, the very next line is such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob so it gets plural all of a sudden and we bring this up a lot. I think we bring this up a lot. Maybe we don't. But Paul reminds us, and we, we, we talked about this in Colossians, that the, the mystery, the reality of kind of how this works itself out is that now you and I are united to that king. Amen. Now you and I are connected to the one who can ascend the hill, who has ascend the hill. We are, we are uh, in union with Jesus. And he's using his people who seek the presence of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's using his people as he sits on his throne to build his kingdom. And I think, you know, I said the kind of the macro example of the last 2,000 years. But here's the reality of sin. We can be so united to Jesus. Our salvation can be secure. Like he, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Or we can rest in the reality that the, the debt was paid on the cross. Even talking to Ben this morning, he said it's done. Like the, yes, the debt is paid. The relationship is restored between me and God because I'm united to Jesus. But we're still in the presence of sin. And sin is so self-deceiving that we don't by default realize where God is ruling and reigning and bringing his kingdom. We don't just like automatically recognize all those things. So how do we recognize, how do you recognize in your life United to this king where God is building his kingdom. How do you recognize 
where because Jesus is connected to you and is sitting on the throne, is ruling and reigning, he's working his purposes in and through you. How do you see that? And the answer is the same way Adam saw it, the same way Moses saw it, the same way David saw it, the same way Jesus taught us, is we compare what we want to do and what we're involved in to his word. His word defines what the kingdom is. His word reveals where he's working. He's competent, he's ascended, he's on the throne. He's working it out. And because of sin, we miss and we don't see. Have you thought at home, whether with a kid, whether with a relationship, with a spouse, what does it look like for God to build his kingdom here? What does it look like to believe that Jesus is successful and is making every enemy his footstool and his word has become more a part of what's happening in this house, in this relationship? I mean, sometimes that looks like the husband humiliating himself with his wife by giving her her preference and humbling and saying, I feel very strongly about this, but I want God's kingdom to come. And I know that happens through me being humbled and allowing for my wife's preferences to be what, what is promoted. Sometimes that means this, sometimes it means forgiving someone who may not totally understand what they even did wrong. Sometimes it means loving my neighbor in a way that's really uncomfortable. What about work? Who has thought the 40 hours I'm committing to this job this week is where God is going to build his kingdom? Because I'm connected to the one who has ascended the hill of the Lord. What does God's word have to say about how I apply myself to this job? What does God's word say about what would be kingdom realities at this job? No matter what circumstance you're in, no matter how you're suffering, how you're rejoicing, if you're married or not married, if you have zero kids or 15 kids, thinks my sister only has six, but that's a lot. Where you are at today has been meticulously designed by your king to bring the kingdom of God. And if you believe that and say, Lord, how does your word, how does your presence, how can I bring what you have defined as your glory into the place that you have put me? The neighborhood you're in, the people you wave to that live next door and that's what you do for the next two years, I'm saying that to myself, um, are intentional. God has designed it that way. He's put people there because he's sitting on his throne. He's building his kingdom and he's using it, you, because he's connected to you in and through you to step forward and say, your word, Lord, applies to this situation and this is what's gonna build your kingdom where you've put me. I think um, Bridget and I were talking about this a little bit and It was actually a Gospel Coalition article about like how to get over that like awkward like I'm a Christian with someone at work like transition 
Like, uh, I was talking to someone else too. When you've been a friend with someone for a long time and you haven't had like any real kind of weighty conversations, um, you kind of just a bucket, like section that off and never talk about that again. Like it's harder when you meet someone at church, you're like, oh, hey, you know, like this is, you know, we care about God's word to some extent you're here, you know. But when you've known someone for 10 years and you've never had any conversation that's like rooted in what God's word says and your desire to build the kingdom, that's a hurdle like to get over. And that can be a little bit scary. And that can be another, I think another situation is where, uh, I mean, hey, we're a, we're a tiny church. I know this is the favorite side over here. But, it, but we can look at some of the issues in the world we can look at some of the issues in our neighborhood. We, we can look at uh, the, the amount of time I have maybe because I have two kids um, and say, Lord, man, I, can, I imagine what it would be like for your kingdom and your word to make an influence here, but I don't think there's anything I can really do to that. How am I gonna make a difference? If we're honest with ourselves, if we begin to consider what God's word, God's presence, and spreading God's glory through his kingdom would look like, it can be a little scary or just we can just feel like defeated. We can just feel like we're not really going to accomplish anything. The spirit knows that we are weak. In the, in the beauty and the wonder of what God is doing is he reminds us and repeats over and over again in the psalm. The largest part of the psalm is repeating to us the answer to that stress, the, the answer to our fear, the answer to our weakness. Look at what he says. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Where, where are the, the gates and the, the ancient doors? Commentators think that Paul is, or Paul, David is prophetically desiring the temple. I mean, he wanted to make plans for it, and God said, no. He wanted a temple. He's saying, go to the temple and draw near to God, that the king of glory may come and dwell in his temple where God is present. Where is the temple today? You are the temple. You are where God dwells. You are the one that has God himself dwelling in you. How much more resources do you need? Who is the king of glory? The Lord. It's all capitalized in your Bibles, L-O-R-D. Yahweh. The self-existent, I am. I am who I am. That's the all caps Lord is telling you. The self-existent God who is strong and mighty. The self-existent God who is mighty in battle. He repeats it. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. This is why we gather as the body of Christ, as the temple of the living God. We gather so that we can let the king of glory come in, so that we could remind ourselves of the very presence of God, so that we could say, Lord, you dwell in us. You fill Emmaus church with your presence and you are mighty in battle. You are capable. You are able to build your kingdom exactly how you want it and you put us here. You put us here to be a part of that. You put us here to see you work and to look at your word and be encouraged by your presence and be the instrument that the glory and majesty of God comes down from the mountain that we're on today and spreads in the places that God has put you. Who is the king of glory? 
joking about my swollen forehead. And Ben goes, well, you're not the king of glory. <laughs> it's a very dad joke appropriate of him. But if, if you think that you have to be the one to bring the kingdom, if you think you need enough resources, if you think you're the one that makes the change in your friends or your neighbors or whoever, stop thinking you're the king of glory. <laughs> you're not sufficient. You can't bring the kingdom. You can't ascend the hill of the Lord. You can't stand in his presence with your sin. But the, the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the, the wonder of the gospel is that he can and has and has united himself to you, dwells in you, empowers you, equips you, uses you, is strong and mighty in battle. And, and he is planning on using you, using Emmaus to grow his kingdom exactly how he wants to. And you can either believe that, recognize what he's doing, apply his word to the world and be a part of that and see that and be encouraged by that. Or you can take it upon yourself and say, I have to be the king of glory. And that's not a good place to be. There's no rest there. So if you believe that, then what does it look like? If God is genuinely in you and empowering you to spread his glory and build his kingdom where he has you, I think you start by just asking, what does his word say his kingdom looks like where I'm at? And maybe that's in a relationship. I mean, I'm, I, or maybe that's in toddler conversations. <laughs> There's a handful of those happening right now in the church. What does it look like to bring God's kingdom to this little one right here through his word in the presence of God? I mean, part of that looks like teaching them about who God is, which is what we do for, you know, 45 minutes on a Sunday. I hate to break it to you, parents. It doesn't matter how many minutes it happens on a Sunday. That's not enough. God, God is building his kingdom through you, the parent, as you teach and train <laughs> your children to walk in the ways of the Lord. And you know what? You can't change their hearts <laughs> because you're not the king of glory, but you have access to him. You can go to him in prayer. You can say, Lord, work, use your spirit, transform my child, transform me as the child reveals things about me that are not <laughs> showing your kingdom. You can stop and think about work. Who are people that you know that you're close to? That you've been nervous, you know, uh, when, uh, when I worked in the office, it was, uh, there was a gentleman named Ryan that I really liked because he got all fired up about politics and stock trading all the time. And so it didn't really matter what was going on. He was just like all over the place about it. And it kind of spun him up. And I was like, Ryan, you're a smart guy. And, you know, showing me how much money he's made and stuff. And I'm like, props to you on that. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just letting you know as a Christian, <laughs> I believe there's a God and a king that actually rules over all the things you're freaking out about. <laughs> and I understand that's unusual for you, but I'm just letting you know that, like, I have a measure of, like, this will be okay because I think there's someone even more powerful in charge of the people that you're kind of complaining about over here that are doing all these things right or wrong. It was, a, it was like one of those times where you're like, that felt natural and it just broke the ice. And then we had so many conversations. He wanted to know, he's like, wait a minute, hold on. And he would come back even to my desk and be like, so let me get this straight. <laughs> this is what you said and this is what, you know, and we would work through it and we would talk about it. And you're just, and you're just asking and you're praying. You're like, Lord, I have conversation all the time with this person. We love this thing. We love this thing. What can you do to open the door so that your kingdom can spread where you've put me? Give me an opportunity. I'm not the king, Lord, you are. Use the spirit. Use your presence dwelling in me to see your glory spread throughout the whole world, including where I'm at today.
I do believe that the mountains are calling and we have to go. There, there is a place in the heavenly throne room where mankind in Christ Jesus meets with God himself. The, the real presence of God is there. And, and the mountain is like a, 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 a just a, a tip, a point where God and man exist together so that his glory could spread. But someday, even as his kingdom grows, even as his glory is spread through all of creation, someday it won't be just one place. Revelation 21 talks about the time when it won't be the king of glory ascending the hill. It will be God's presence with God's people throughout all of creation. Revelation 21 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, coming down from heaven from God. This, the, the heavenly Mount Zion coming down to earth prepared as a bride adorned for a husband and behold I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away he is making every enemy his footstool as he spreads his glory and his kingdom through his word and his presence in this world. And he's using you for that. But the last enemy to be defeated is death. And that happens. It will not be the holy mount of the Lord that Jesus ascends. It'll be the very presence of God all over creation. And death will be no more. And as we grow the kingdom forward, that's what we have to look forward to. The reality that it won't just be one point in the heavenly places. It won't just be on the top of Eden. It'll be worldwide. The very presence of God. Amen. And that's what we look forward to. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you Thank you that the mountains are calling, that your presence is there. Thank you that we live in a day where Christ has ascended. We don't look forward to a good king ruling and reigning and building the kingdom. We have one. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for that. Help us recognize where you're working. Help us recognize how you've equipped us. Help us see what you've given us in our union with that great glorious king. Lord, I pray that worship as we sing, as we take communion, as we open the temple gates, your presence would be known and we would be encouraged and empowered and be sent out. Thank you for today, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.